This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Schizophrenia isn't easy to come to terms with. Just ask Roberta Payne of Denver. The professor of classics first suspected she had the disease in 1985 at a bookstore. She came across the manual doctors use to define mental illness, and the description of paranoid schizophrenia fit with her persistent delusion that aliens controlled her mind. In the 30 years since, she has investigated her own disease and written a book, Speaking to My Madness, How I Searched for Myself in Schizophrenia. Payne has had help in that search from Dr. Robert Friedman, head of psychiatry at CU Denver. They both join us at a moment of notable breakthroughs in schizophrenia research. And a welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you. Roberta, to that moment in the bookstore, you write that the manual's description fit you like a glove. Uh, But the paranoia kept you from sharing your self-diagnosis for years. Why did you keep it a secret? Because I thought that if I'd looked it up and found out about it, it would mean I'd made it up in myself. And then I was a fraud. And I thought only an evil person would do that. So I I just described myself as evil. As and evil. Evil. And I had to, uh, like the alien beings, like um, the creatures from outer space, the rules and so forth that were governing my life, it all had to do with evil. There, schizophrenia has extremes of emotion, extremes of thought. You mentioned the rules there. So uh-huh. th- these aliens you believe to have been controlling your mind had an entire set of rules that you had to live by. That's and, correct. And so your life was very regimented. Your thinking was very regimented. What were these rules? Um, so, well, the major rules were that I wasn't allowed to tell anybody about my illness. And, of course, it never occurred to me that my illness might be obvious. But it, uh, another rule was that I had to commit suicide eventually. Really? They said that that would be... Yeah, that would be the... And I didn't realize that that was a projected self-suicide wish. And so this is why you kept it a secret for so long, even after you had read this manual and realized that this what was plaguing you. Yeah, yeah. I, it was years before I... I was finally able to say that I had done that, and I knew that after a doctor, um, when I was hospitalized the second time, after a doctor finally diagnosed me correctly, I was then able to say, okay, I knew this all along. Because it's not just paranoia on my part. I didn't just invent this. Yeah, yeah. You know, your book taught me the word prodromes, which is Uh uh, a fancy word for an early symptom. Yeah. And it's very likely that you... Uh, became an alcoholic, that you had depression and anxiety in the years before you were certain of the diagnosis, but that it was all related to the schizophrenia. Well, as far as I can tell, but I need to add at this point that my grandfather Payne, who was probably an alcoholic, had four brothers. Three died of alcoholism and one of mental illness. And let's talk about whether uh, schizophrenia has a biological predisposition and how it develops in people, what we know about this, Dr. Friedman. Um, You recently – let me just say that there was a study published recently in the journal Nature that shows a a genetic role in this. There are a number of studies that have found genetic roles for schizophrenia and overall – 
about 70% of the risk comes from genes that, in Roberta's case, were inherited from her father, could be inherited from both parents. It doesn't go from mother to child, but it does uh, move through families because different genes combine to form different combinations, some of which lead to great brilliance, some of which lead to great mental illness, some of which, in the case of Roberta Payne, lead to both. She has both traits uh, clearly evident. She does have a mental illness, but she's also one of the most brilliant people I've ever met. Mm. And so when people speak kind of loosely about the fine line between brilliance and mental illness, there's scientific support for that idea. Yes, there is. And this understanding of schizophrenia as as being genetically related, is that is that new thinking? It really is not. Uh, it began uh, early in the 20th century. But what is new is that we now are actually discovering the genes that are involved in it. And there are probably over 100 that in one way or another contribute to the risk for schizophrenia. And does that mean that there is a cure closer than it has been before? We would hope so. And one of the promising new things in research is that gene discoveries are now being used to guide the discoveries of new and better medications and also new and better strategies for preventing the illness altogether. To what extent, Roberta, does medication affect your schizophrenia and allow you to live uh, a different kind of life today? I owe my sanity entirely to medication. And I owe the fine points of it to very, very good therapy. But I would I would not be sane without my medications. I want to point uh, to the moment of an initial psychotic break. So there's another recent study, um, and it measured the effectiveness of this comprehensive treatment right after that initial break. Uh, treatments like job support and school support and family counseling. Uh, so things that go beyond the scope, perhaps, of normal insurance coverage. Uh, this was called the RAISE trial. And Dr. Friedman, what did this study find? The RAISE trial found that medication is necessary, but not sufficient to help someone recover from their first episode. Roberta's describing her first episode and the threat of suicide that was very much present, uh, how disruptive it was to her life, descending her into alcoholism and um, self-doubt. And that struck her while she was in between her uh, undergraduate students' uh, studies at Stanford and her graduate student studies at Harvard. So it took a very promising person and essentially knocked them out. What we have to do is go back now and study all those fine points she talked about, what kind of support we need to add in addition to medication to make sure we have the best effect and prove it so that insurance will pay for it. And much of this Ray's trial happened in Colorado, didn't it? Colorado was one of a number of sites, but it was uh, responsible for uh, as its part in a national collaboration that ended up in the Ray's study. And so the, the big idea there is that it, it can't just be a drug intervention when there is that initial psychotic break. It has to be these kind of support services for someone with schizophrenia. And I wonder, Roberta, if you'd take us to that time in your life. Okay. It was entirely different. I, I first got ill sort of during the Middle Ages of um, psychiatric medications and psychiatric um, therapy. Um, the first, I was in a mental hospital when I was 22 for several months. And my psychiatrist, psychiatrist 
parting words were, don't let this become your career. And that's all I got. Just I walked out of, it was almost like walking out of prison and someone saying, okay, have a nice life. What, what do you mean, don't let this become your career? What did he mean? Don't let, don't let uh, mental illness become your career. Mm. Not terribly helpful advice. Not te- and that was it. That's all I had. I got in my car, and that was in um, Palo Alto, and I got in my car and drove to Colorado, and that was the end of it. And what was that initial break like? Scary, really scary, because I had nothing to compare it to. I had never known a mentally ill person. I didn't I didn't know what I was getting into. Uh, I've... My family was not particularly supportive. They they were, as I said, this was, this was in the sixties when stigma was enormous. It was expected I would never marry. I would never have any normal life. Let alone become a brilliant professor. Thank you. <laughs> yes, I, there was nothing, really nothing. And it's it's very different now. I I work at the mental health center of Denver for the youth program, and we're helping youth take that first step after. They've become ill, and we have all sorts of programs for them, all sorts of support. I would like to add that Roberta has taught 2,000 CU medical students about schizophrenia personally so that uh, she is helping to make sure we don't graduate doctors who can't offer the kind of help and support that patients like Roberta need. Indeed, uh, Roberta, you have spoken at Dr. Freeman's classes. Yeah. And you share your story. Yes, I do. And what what aspects of that story do you think are most important for... May I tell you my metaphor that I start the class out with? Please do. Okay, it's um, imagine, I tell the young doctors, that you are dropped off in the middle of Denver at night with no car keys, nothing. And you're expected, in order to save your life, to um, find a bag of heroin by morning. And I said, can you do that? Could you do that to save your life? And then I say, that's how hard it is to get out of schizophrenia. Why does that metaphor work, do you think? What does it illustrate about the It disease? illustrates just how very diff- how it takes all your wits and all your courage and all your physical effort to get what you need to stay alive. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. And at a time when there have been some important breakthroughs in the understanding of schizophrenia, we are speaking with a Denver woman who has the disease. That's Roberta Payne and who has written about her investigation of her own mental illness in a book called Speaking to My Madness, How I Searched for Myself in Schizophrenia. We're also speaking with Dr. Robert Friedman, who's head of psychiatry at CU Denver, And the two uh, essentially have struck up a friendship as they have been on this investigatory path together. Uh, Dr. Friedman, can you help us understand how schizophrenia develops? When is it most likely to show up in someone who's predisposed to it? It it generally shows up late in adolescence or early in adulthood. Roberta's uh, problems began to surface while she was just leaving Stanford. So uh, that was early adulthood for her. It's often a little later in women. And the more intelligent you are, the longer it takes to develop because your intelligence really serves to help prevent the illness. Once the illness starts, your intelligence then becomes part of the paranoia itself. And that's why uh, some of Roberta's delusions for a while were quite elaborate uh, with quite elaborate rules and 
uh, very ingenious spaceships telling her what to do. Uh, and that's also, unfortunately, a mark of her intelligence that became enslaved to the illness. Fascinating. That is to say the sophistication of what you imagine with schizophrenia has to do with the sophistication of your own thinking. That's right. And what is, what's going on in the brain that links these two things? That's fascinating. What goes on is that Roberta obviously has an enormous computer. Uh, she knows classics from... Um, the onset of humanity up until the present. She's the most widely read person I know. But what she has problems with is processing information quickly. And if we put her under stress and we give her a lot of things to do at once, she's going to make mistakes. And some of those mistakes, because of her great intelligence, end up as her paranoid delusions, particularly when she was younger, which is when most patients have most of their delusions started. Um, we think the reason for that, the best analogy that I can use, is she has an enormous computer, but it's working on last year's operating system. Hmm. And what we think happened at the end of her fetal life, when she was just about to be delivered, there were a few final steps in upgrading her operating system to a newborn level, which is actually the adult level as well, which never happened. And... That was the first manifestation of the genetic predisposition she had. So her genes didn't quite do the full job. They gave her an enormous computer, but not the best operating system in the world to run with it. And she spent her life learning how to make up for that. And she's done an admirable job. You just have to to stand in awe of what Roberta has accomplished for herself. And you have been along with her for much of that journey. The two of you met in the 1990s. And so that's a relationship that is formed because of schizophrenia. But generally, Roberta, what has schizophrenia meant for your relationships? I've lost a lot of relationships. I recently had some poems published by a... Um, Magazine, a journal of Columbia University, and I was working with the editor. Poems. And poems, translations, mm. and from the Italian. And I was working with a, um, with the editor, became very, very close to him. And I finally ended up just telling him that I had schizophrenia and never heard from him again. And that has happened to me time after time. Um, we still live in an age of stigma. But I have very good friends. I have perhaps 20 very, very close friends, including Bob, who will tell me if I need help and who appreciate the efforts I'm making to stay sane. Uh, but me, my me, friends are everything to me. Yeah, give me an example. So you say, we'll tell you when you need help. Dr. Friedman, what's an example of where you have to be something of a, a check on her operating system? First of all, I should tell you that I'm not her primary doctor. Um, because the doctor-patient relationship is much different. I'm her friend. Yeah, yeah. And we've worked together. She came to me to help me write better, not not for help as a patient. And we ha when we work together, she will sometimes call me up and say, I think you were mad at me yesterday. And that's a misperception of hers. And we talk about why the misperception occurred, and we talk about whether she's getting more ill or whether uh, it's something we can just clear up over the phone. 99% of the time, we clear it up over the phone. If we can't, we may talk about raising her medication, or we may talk about uh, that her doctor needs to see her a little more frequently. 
At one point in your memoir, uh, Roberta, Dr. Friedman asks you about your experience with the disease. And I'm wondering if you could read that passage for us. Dr. Friedman stopped and looked forward and asked me earnestly, what is schizophrenia like? I don't know of any way I can say that, I replied. We were silent for several moments. I wanted badly to say something useful. I wanted to he- I wanted him to see not just the trappings of schizophrenia, but to let him inside my head somehow. I was silent some more. The fact was I couldn't let him in. So I said, your words don't include me. They muzzle me. Even that metaphor, muzzle, doesn't do it. Are there aspects of schizophrenia that are still hard to describe, to convey to other people? Yes, it's very hard to convey to other people that it's not my thoughts, my thoughts that are acting. Thoughts take over. That's the... That's the experience I have. And they're very strong and very persistent, and there's little I can do about them at that point unless I intervene by calling my psychiatrist or taking meds or seeing a friend or calling uh, Bob. But um, if you've ever seen a picture of a very, very mentally ill person in a uh, mental hospital who's just sitting there staring... Their head is just swarming with thoughts that are not their own. Just That's the word I use to describe the intensity of it, swarming. We mentioned that you speak to Dr. Friedman's students, and um, you've actually changed that speech as you've gone along. You used to end it by saying, psychosis is a deeply enriching experience, that you had found gratitude in this, but that's not a line you include anymore. No, I don't. I, I just, I wish I had never had schizophrenia. I see very little of value in it. Um, it's helped me become more artistic, um, but that's about all I can say for it. I'm more past, artistic. How's, more artistic. How so? Um, I do a lot of outsider art. Outsider art is the art of the marginalized. And I feel that I am more creative because of the schizophrenia, but that's truly the only gift it's given me. Is it that it provides you with imagery how does it help you as an artist? Um, I don't have the same, uh, necessarily the same connections between one idea and one uh, observation to another that other people have. I have an ease of going from A to C instead of going A, B, C. It's not such a literal mind. It's not such a literal mind, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And that helps with art a lot. What would you say, um, Dr. Friedman, is the next big hurdle to cross in understanding schizophrenia? The next big hurdle is one actually we're already working on, and I can't say we've fully crossed it yet, but it is to get back into when the biology is first laid down while the brain is being formed and try to do what we can to make sure that people who have the genetic predisposition to schizophrenia don't actually get the illness. In other words, they're born normal. And there are examples of that in medicine. The best one is the use of folate, which now every pregnant woman takes in massive doses so that her baby doesn't have spina bifida. That's a major malformation of the nervous system, uh, the spinal cord not fusing. If we can get that to respond, I think we can get something like schizophrenia to respond. That is Dr. Robert Friedman, Chair of Psychiatry at CU Denver, and we heard the story of Roberta Payne of Denver, who's author of Speaking to My Madness, How I Searched for Myself in Schizophrenia. 
Coming up, Christians celebrated Easter over the weekend, but it wasn't the only holiday going on. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. War and political upheaval forced Ramina Kashani's family to flee Iran in the early 80s. She was 14 then. Her family relocated to Colorado. Homesickness hit hard the first time Kashani celebrated Nowruz, the Persian New Year, on American soil. Today, she directs the Colorado Children's Nowruz Foundation, and the Persian New Year, a secular holiday, ends this weekend. More than 4,500 Coloradans identify as Iranian or Iranian-American, according to the Census Bureau. And Ramina, welcome to the program. Thank you, Ryan. Thanks for having me. What would I say to you? I, I guess I, in English I'd say, Happy Nowruz, but what would I, what would I say to you? That's uh, a good thing to say. Or you say, um, Nowruz Piruz or Nowruz Mubarak. Nowruz Piruz, what would that Mubarak. mean? Mubarak. Yeah. Nowruz Piruz means Happy New Year or Happy Nowruz. Okay. Well, when your family had to leave Iran, you say it was sudden. You couldn't even tell your friends you were leaving. Uh, briefly, tell me, right. tell me about the circumstances that led to your family's rushed departure. So it was 1984, and um, times were kind of difficult in Iran. We left Iran. My, um, my mom's side of family, my youngest uncle, was uh, politically active in Iran, at a time, and unfortunately, he was uh, arrested and uh, executed by the current government. So we had to leave Iran pretty suddenly and really not knowing exactly whether we could leave or not, um, not knowing the consequences. So uh, we left. Uh, I was told by my parents that do not tell anyone at school. So we left in the middle. It was November, and um, I left Iran without telling anyone, except I broke the, the rule and told one person, and um, thankfully there was no issues in the airport, and we left. So we couldn't really take anything with us do you, as far as pictures or memories. Do you remember understanding why you had to leave so secretly and quickly, or do you remember being angry that you were put into that position? I remember, I understood it very well, um, because it just didn't happen overnight. Um, the revolution happened, and I was only in third grade when the revolution happened. And, uh, we, um, I mean, my family talked at dinner table, we talked about politics and what was happening. So I understood it pretty well. It was, um, for a, for a young child, it's, it's, sort of like uh, whatever you see is a given. It's not really, you don't, as an adult, you try to theorize and explain things to yourself. But for a child, it's whatever it is that you accept it. So um, I kind of uh, followed what everybody else did. And uh, I was excited, honestly. I was excited because we were one of the last of my family to leave United, I mean, I mean Iran. So I was excited to uh, come to United States, and I ha- always uh, we had traveled to United States previously, so I knew exactly what it was. Very colorful and mm. fun and 
candies. <laughs> okay. So I was excited to move on and join the rest of my family. But your first Nowruz here was not sparkling by any means. Uh, it sp- wasn't. It wasn't. It was so disappointing and uneventful, really, Ryan. Um, I remember it was um, actually it happened because Persian New Year it's uh, it doesn't it's not like uh, New Year here that it happens at 12 p.m. It every year it changes it happens exactly when the vernal equinox happens so every year it's different so it happened to be right around 10 a.m. Uh, that year in the middle of the week so I was at school and all my family my sisters were at school and my family was at work. So we didn't really do much. We did have our traditional table set in our house, but we couldn't really do the traditional thing that everyone does. You gather around the Persian, um, the half scene and the traditional table and uh, wait for the actual moment to happen. Ah. So, yes. And so you called that... You call that a half scene. Let me let me just explain the vocabulary to people. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is the traditional ceremonial table, and and it becomes the really the centerpiece at the at the moment of the vernal equinox. That's right. Describe that table for us. There's a photo of one, by the so, way, yeah. uh, a rather elaborate setup at cprnews.org. Yes. So the half scene is uh, something that you can find in every Persian home during Nowruz time. It really, um, it's a traditional table. It's, it's, uh, you, you actually have a cloth. You put a cloth on a table, which is called sofre, and you put seven items on this table, and every single item is representing something that you need for the year to come. My goodness, um, I, I have well, to say, it, it sounds a lot like the Jewish holiday of Passover and, and the Seder. Very similar. Yes, I, I agree. I agree with you. I think some of these holidays, um, they have adopted different traditions from each other as, as the history happens. And honestly, the, um, from what I know, I'm no, no expert, you know, I'm not a historian, but from what I know, have seen also changed throughout the history. Um, some believe that, um, and what does half seen mean is really literally means seven, half means seven, and seen is a Persian S, the letter S. And uh, set the number seven, you would wonder why seven. I think it just, uh, it's a number that was attributed throughout the civilization, when the civilization happened, it, they say, some say that the seven is uh, recognized by the seven planets, the sun, the moon, the Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn, or, and then throughout the history, it went on to having on this table, they only put seven um, grains, uh, such as um, wheat, you know, they put like a branch of wheat or pomegranate, rice, pears, peas, and barley, and some other ones. But now we put seven S's, seven items that starts with the letter S, and each one is symbolic. And this might be garlic, which uh, is seer. Um, and right. it can symbolize health and medicine uh, in something that feels a lot like Easter. Painted eggs might be on the half scene table as well. 
And I understand that sweets and pastries are eaten in, in great quantities during Nowruz. Lots and lots. Okay. <laughs> so it's really interesting because the Nowruz really doesn't start exactly at the first day of you know, spring. It really happens a few weeks before that. And it's just all the preparation that happens prior to that. You got it. Uh, do we still have you on the line? We might have lost you. Is that the case? We have. We, lo- we lost the line. But, you know, I've seen um, Nauru spelled a number of different ways in English. You know, sometimes it's N-O-W-R-U-Z. Sometimes uh, it is without the W. And as um, uh, we've spelled it on, on the website, actually, um, Iranian-American comedian Maz Jobrani actually pokes fun at its many spellings. The word is Nauru's. N. O-R-O-O-S-T-E-R. No rooster. That was pretty good. Thank you for trying. Uh, Like, I suppose, the holiday of Hanukkah in the Jewish tradition, there are lots of different ways to spell no ruse. You can learn much more about it at our website. That is cprnews.org. And there we have also posted a recipe for a no ruse sweet. If you're interested in cooking something up, we were speaking there with Ramina Kashani. She's the executive director of the Denver nonprofit, the Colorado Children's Nauru's Foundation. Your feedback is coming up in loud and clear. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Reactions from listeners take center stage in loud and clear, our regular feedback segment. This time, though, we'll start with reaction from a guest, Mohammed Norzai of Aurora was one of three Muslim Coloradans we interviewed recently about how Muslims have been singled out since the attacks in Paris and San Bernardino. Days after our conversation, ISIS attacked Brussels, Belgium. That's when Norzai, a former head of the Colorado Muslim Society, got back in touch with us. Quoting here, As a Colorado Muslim, I condemn the terror attacks in Brussels by the ISIS extremists in the strongest terms. There is no justification in Islam for targeting civilians for any reason. He uses three exclamation marks there. My heart goes out to the families of the dead and the injured, and I cannot find the words to express my sorrow. I believe that people of goodwill all over the world should speak against these senseless violent acts no matter where they occur and we can no longer stay indifferent or quiet. Comments from listeners poured in after my interview with Denver Health psychiatrist Dr. Abraham Nussbaum. He calls for a renewal of medicine in his new book. He says doctors are too often depressed, burnt out, and fail to connect with patients, thinking of them only as parts and money. We fall into the trap of thinking that giving somebody something means medicine. Part of what I want physicians to think about is that you can give yourself the gift of your own time and your attention. We asked if that was your experience as a patient or as a healthcare provider. Megan Jackson of Denver wrote on our Facebook page, CPR News, One thing I love about our family doctor is that she really takes time with us and knows our whole family. She treats us not just as parts, but as an ecosystem, if you will. If one of us comes in sick, which is common with a toddler, she makes sure the whole family is cared for and treated. When I came in for the regular checks when our daughter was a baby, she checked on me and treated me at the same time. I feel fortunate to have found her because I know that is a rarity. A skeptic chimed in asking, did the bill reflect her initiative? No, replied Jackson. Her bill is the same as any other primary care physician. 
We also heard from end-of-life reform advocate Bart Windrum of Boulder. He takes issue with the use of the term care when it comes to medicine. He says both of his parents were admitted to the hospital before their deaths, and that for the first week they were there, he didn't do enough to advocate on his parents' behalf. And it occurred to me that we were waiting for care. And I believe that the medical folks doing their thing believed they were delivering care, but we didn't experience what we knew care to be. And I subsequently came to call that mom and apple pie care, right? The care that we received as children, the kind of care that we give our kids, the kind of care that we still provide to our spouses and and loved ones as adults, right? And I realized that our sense of care and medicine sense of care were not the same. So then I had to redefine what it is that medicine offers to us when we are hospitalized so that I would be better positioned to be an effective advocate for my hospitalized loved ones, if this happens again, right, from the get-go, because I can't afford to lose a week. Bad things can happen. So he's changed how he talks about medicine. Hospitals don't provide care. They provide bodily repair services under the direction of independent physician scientists and nurse monitoring on some schedule. And I don't mean to be pejorative, but medicine wants to own care. They claim ownership. They claim to have the corner on this thing called care. And when we say healthcare without really thinking about it, then we buy into that. And there are way too many instances where it actually doesn't occur and it's actually very detrimental if it doesn't occur. Now on to the confusion and consternation over Democratic superdelegates. They were our focus with Elaine Kmark, author of Primary Politics, Everything You Need to Know About How America Nominates Its Presidential Candidates. She told us that contrary to popular belief, superdelegates aren't entirely unaccountable. One thing I think our listeners need to understand is that superdelegates, as they're called, are also all elected. Every single one of them is elected by somebody at home, and therefore they would not change their mind lightly or whimsically. I mean, it's a serious decision to go against the will of the people. Well, Dale Creek of Santa Barbara, California, takes issue with the phrase, every single one is elected. So we got back in touch with Elaine Kmark, and she says, indeed, there are some exceptions. For instance, former President Bill Clinton is a superdelegate, as is former Vice President Walter Mondale. And some, like Chairman of the Colorado Democratic Party Rick Palacio, aren't elected at all by voters, but by the party. The South by Southwest Festival wrapped up in Austin, Texas, but as it was underway, we told you about some of the Colorado bands that performed. Far fewer, though, this year, because as CPR arts reporter Corey Jones explained, there's been a shift in how the industry and the state promote Colorado music. Governor Hickenlooper has told us that he really wants to push Colorado's music scene outside of the state. And yet lately, they've been doing a lot to help build infrastructure and offer support for bands within Colorado. So it'll be interesting to see if that's kind of the way they lean going forward. 
Brian Eister thinks that's the right choice. He's a music promoter in Lyons, Colorado, and is a South By regular. He says the festival in Austin has, quote, become less useful for us in recent years. The increasing size of the event makes it harder for us to see all the bands we want to see. So I love efforts focusing on discovery and career development right here in Colorado. Helping more Colorado artists become export-ready seems a more useful and attainable goal. And finally, I might need to wash my mouth out with soap. I used the term fugly the other day, and I stand by its use once when I referred to a Facebook page dedicated to architectural design. Its title includes the word. But later in the segment, I used it in a manner unconnected to the page, and Jessica Charlie of Louisville called that poor form. Quote, I assume Mr. Warner is aware of the origins of that word, so using it seems to lack the decorum I generally hear and have come to expect from CPR. Keep your feedback coming. We are CPR News on Facebook, at Colorado Matters on Twitter, or comment at the bottom of specific articles at CPRnews.org. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Delegates from Colorado to the Republican National Convention could play a big role in choosing the GOP's presidential nominee. That's because the party could be headed for a showdown on the convention floor between supporters of Donald Trump and those who want to stop him. But as CPR's Megan Verlee reports, no one yet knows where Colorado's 37 delegates will land. If there was ever a year to be an RNC delegate, Denver Republican Jerry Wheeler thinks this is it. You want to go to a brokered one, you know, one where your vote can really impact it, rather than going to a convention already being decided and you're just there for show. I talked with Wheeler just after the Denver County Assembly. He was lobbying fellow party members there to send him on to the Congressional District Assembly or the state convention next month. Those are where RNC delegates are actually elected from a wider pool of party faithful. In the past, Wheeler says, delegates mostly ran on their reputation or general political views. This year, people didn't seem to care so much about that. The biggest question was whom you supported for president. And kind of the more pronounced question was, are you anti-Trump? That's the $10,000 question. Will Colorado's Republican delegates help push Donald Trump over the threshold, or will they throw in with the stop Trump side? So far, more than 500 people have applied to run for the delegation's 34 open slots. Almost two-thirds of them say they want to go unbound to any candidate. The rest are split between Trump and Senator Ted Cruz. Sending unbound delegates could make Colorado a kingmaker at a close convention. But state Republican Party chair Steve House says even unbound RNC candidates will likely have to give some sense of how they'd vote. Everybody's talking about the presidency. Everybody's talking about who the delegates should be. I just think that there's going to be a lot of people that are going to require that they know who you're supporting if you're going to run for national delegate. Colorado's Republican delegate selection process is an election in miniature. About 4,000 people at the state and congressional district assemblies will choose the delegates. That means campaigns can afford to lobby each and every one of them. And they are. I get all the calls, all the emails. It's unbelievable. I get four or five a day. D.J. Lampson has long been active in the Jefferson County Republican Party and will attend next month's state assembly. He says he won't vote for delegates just based on which candidate they support. With the National Republican Party on the brink of civil war, Lampson wants Colorado's delegation to commit to supporting the eventual nominee. We want to win. That's the whole attitude I'm looking for. So, to get unified, that's the key. 
Let's take a moment here and acknowledge that the way Colorado Republicans pick their RNC delegates is really complicated. Even people involved in the process don't necessarily fully understand it. That's the case for Keith Sargent. He attended the Jefferson County Assembly. I'm not exactly sure how the presidential piece works, so it'll be it'll be a bit of a learning experience for me this year. I'm glad I'm not the only one. <laughs> <laughs> I know, and there, there seems to be very little information. Like, I spent, I don't know, an hour trying to figure out exactly how we can do it online, and I wasn't able to come up with a definitive answer. In most states, delegates are obliged to represent the results of a primary or straw poll. But in Colorado, the party dropped its preference poll this year, so there's no broader measure of voter opinion for delegates to represent. At the Jefferson County Assembly, Tony Polisi was frustrated with that decision. I'm trying to find out who those delegates are so I could talk to them and find out whether they're going to represent me properly or not. Polisi believes the party dropped its straw poll to give the establishment a stronger hand in allocating the delegates. Are you concerned that your candidate won't get supported at the national? Oh, absolutely. Who are you supporting? Of course I'm supporting Trump. Anybody who's not supporting Trump is not worried about it. (laughs) The Colorado GOP says giving up the straw poll had nothing to do with favoring one candidate over another. Experienced party members say it's likely Colorado will end up sending a mix of delegates to the RNC in July, unbound ones along with Cruz and Trump supporters. And GOP Chair Steve House has one big message for the people who will pick the delegates. Colorado's party will support whoever wins the nomination. We get applause for that everywhere we go right now because I think everybody realizes that the choice is support who the nominee is or deal with Hillary Clinton probably or Bernie Sanders and moving toward a socialist environment. And nobody in these rooms wants to be that. House is currently focused on wrapping up the delegate selection process. But once it's over, Colorado's Republican chairman has a new goal to help the state switch to a presidential primary. A bill to do that failed in the state legislature last year due to grassroots opposition and its multi-million dollar price tag. But with so much attention focused on the complex caucus process this year, there's talk state lawmakers may revisit the idea soon. I'm Megan Verlee, CPR News. There has been a dramatic increase in the number of homeless children in Colorado. The issue is particularly pronounced in some of the state's largest counties. CPR health reporter John Daly spoke with Nathan Heffel. John, this latest information comes from the 2016 Kids Count Report. That's right, Nathan. That's an annual report put out by the Colorado Children's Campaign. It's a nonprofit, nonpartisan research and advocacy group. It relied on numbers from the state's Department of Education. Now, it found the number of homeless students skyrocketed during the 2014-15 school year compared to the prior school year. This is especially true in large urban counties. The number of homeless students in Adams, Jefferson, and El Paso counties all rose more than 10 percent. In Pueblo, it was up 31 percent. In Denver, it was 41 percent. And in Mesa County on the Western Slope, that's Grand Junction, the number of kids who are homeless was up 68 percent. I see. So what kind of numbers are we talking overall? Well, those increases represent hundreds of students. So in each of those counties, the schools are reporting hundreds more homeless children. Take, for example, Denver County, where they're seeing 41 percent more homeless children. That's nearly a thousand more homeless students 
last school year than the year before. Now, for a deeper look, you spoke to the coordinator who deals with homeless children in Grand Junction. What did she tell you? I spoke with Kathy Ebel. She's the Prevention Services Coordinator for School District 51 in Mesa County. In 2015, the district reported 653 homeless students. That's a jump of more than 250 students from the year before, Ebel says. Our unaccompanied youth population is exploding. That is a huge issue for, I think, across the state and probably across the nation. So what's behind those numbers, John? Well, there's a lot going on here. Schools are doing a better job tracking homeless children. That's part of it. And at a big picture level, you've got some major economic forces at play. In Grand Junction, the economic recovery after the recession has been slower than other parts of the state. Jobs in oil and gas have tailed off. Grand Junction is the biggest city between Denver and Salt Lake, so it has a lot more social services than rural areas, so it attracts a lot of families. And another issue, like many communities in Colorado, the housing prices have shot up, but the supply of affordable housing hasn't kept up as the population grows. So what's going on in individual families? Kathy Ebel, the school prevention services coordinator in Grand Junction, tells me there's a host of problems. Families are dealing with substance abuse, domestic abuse, mental health problems, or severe economic stress. We have kids who are really leaving such chaotic and such difficult environments that they feel safer not with their families than with their families. They really are fleeing some pretty difficult situations. We have a large population of throwaway youth that they just, for one reason or another, the parents decide they're done. In some cases, Ebel says, some of the issues revolve around youth dealing with sexual identity. She says about a quarter of the homeless children in Mesa County are truly on their own, both homeless and not living with their families. Some are living in a teen shelter. Others are crashing with friends. Our kids who are not with family members are really, really a challenge because they can't enter into leases even if they could find a place. And the instability of couch surfing is really tough for kids to focus on getting an education, which, as we know, is the only way out of this poverty cycle. John, we should point out that the 2016 Kids Count report tracks all kinds of factors from health to education, obesity to school dropout rates. Uh, There are some positive trends for Colorado, too, right? Definitely. There's some good news for Colorado kids. For example, you can see changes set in motion by Obamacare and the expansion of Medicaid. The number of children without insurance dropped sharply in the last few years. Healthcare has gotten slightly more affordable for Colorado families. Also, the child poverty rate has declined for two years straight, reaching pre-recession levels. That shows the recovery has taken hold in many parts of the state. Still, those child poverty numbers vary widely across the state, depending on your race, ethnicity, and where you live geographically in Colorado. That is our health reporter John Daly speaking with Nathan Heffel. CPR News has spent more than a year reporting on children in poverty in Colorado and what can be done about it. Find that coverage and a link to the new Kids Count report at CPRnews.org. Finally today, Pandas and People is the name of the alternative folk duo formed by vocalist and bassist Joshua Shear and guitarist Johnny Day. They're from northern Colorado and were voted Best New Artist by Greeley radio station The Colorado Sound. Pandas and People were also nominated as Best Folk Band in Colorado by Westward. Recently, they stopped by the CPR Performance Studio, and here's their track, On My Way. Feet pavement and I'm on my Feels heavy since we've gone 
Pandas and people. And I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Pray these thunderheads bring a 